Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and the benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Margaret Moore. Dr. Margaret Moore is the director of the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's. She is a professor in the Department of Political Studies with a cross-appointment as a courtesy in philosophy, where she teaches in the Master's in Political and Legal Theory program. Her research focuses on justice, nationalism, and the territorial rights of peoples and states. She's the author of A Political Theory of Territory, which won the Canadian Philosophical Association's biannual book prize for 2017, and most recently, Who Should Own Natural Resources? She's also a recipient of the 2019 Prize for Excellence in Research, which is Queen's Signature Internal Research Honour. Hi, Margaret. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. Let's begin by talking about your, your book, A Political Theory of Territory. The abstract describes the book as a defense of this theory. So can you tell our listeners what the theory is, what the defense of the theory is, and perhaps touch on how this work has influenced your research? Right. Um, so, t- so I'm a political philosopher and I'm trained in a the- in a tradition of just of of justice, right? Like distributive justice, like Rawlsian theory. And one of the distinctive features of almost all political theory of that variety is that it's almost entirely focused on the relationship between states and citizens, the rights and responsibilities that citizens have in relation to states and vice versa. And what's completely under-theorized is the fact that states are not just membership organizations, but have a geographical domain. They have a territory. And that has almost entirely been under-theorized, either as a kind of brute fact, they won it through conquest, which would make actually states ultimately not normatively defended fully so ultimately so just a kind of conquest or just a kind of functional kind of relation you know that this is just functionally necessary to states but but that account doesn't explain the particular domains of states how we should think about it so I was interested in that because it just seemed to me for a long time that it was under theorized that we needed to get, get to grips with that and also because... What, what do you mean by under-theorized? I mean that we just didn't actually ask the question about what could justify the particular territory. This concept of territory, I think, what occurs to me is two, two components. I mean, territory is, is, a, is a concept, right? Uh, indigenous people historically have not thought of boundaries and property ownership in in a particular way. And then in more modern times, with the internet and transnational corporations, the concept of autonomy of states seems to be softening a bit. Right, yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so territory, when you think about territory, you're absolutely right, it's a political concept. So territory is not the same as land. Land is a kind of, I guess, a geological concept. It's about the part of the Earth's surface that's not covered by water. And territory is a political concept. It's about the geographical domain of jurisdictional authority. And it's usually thought in in our world, the Westphalian kind of world, post-Westphalian world, that when you have... 
that a state has rights to exercise jurisdiction there, rights to control resources there, rights to control borders, and, um, and, and, and you can ask questions about what would justify each one of those rights. And of course, you could have a, ter a concept of territory that doesn't give you all, all the things that you might think all those rights you could imagine. So what is the position that you argue in a political theory of territory? Right. So I think that when I was thinking about how, how I would do this, how, how I would think through a, a, a theory of territory, given that there were so few accounts, um, I thought that it had to put three things into relationship. The people, land, and then governments, actually, the state. So a theory of territory would have to explain the appropriate, normatively defensible relationship between these three things. And the way I did it was I asked the question, what relates people to land? What is significant about that relationship? What's, what moral value can we have in that relationship? And then connect it to governments. Mm -hmm. So it's not the same as property, because I see property as derived from the exercise of government. But I think that there's something to be said for examining the moral relationship between people and place and the idea that we that we have place-related interests and also place-related plans and attachments that need that for which people can make real claims mm -hmm. and the normal way that that's been theorized which is either um either that it's just a kind of brute fact that certain states have certain places or that it's a matter of distributive, of pure distributive justice, didn't seem to me to make sense. And by, by the last point I mean, because you look a little puzzled, I mean that um, if, we, if we were like in Star Trek and we came to some new planet, then it would make sense to conceive of it as a matter of distributive justice. You know, who should get where? And it should be distributed fairly. Right. But that isn't the way our position here in this world where people are located in places and they have plans and attachments to place that might have moral significance. And so the appropriate way to think about that is to think about what those, what, what those plans and attachments entail. Of course, there has to be the claims of other people, but that that seems to me to be to, to, to give rise to kind of significant entitlements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The relationship of territory and, and government or governance is an interesting one. I mean, you can, we have situations where a particular politician might be elected, but the popular vote might not necessarily support that person. Can you comment on that a little bit? Is that related to your research? Well, I not 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 in this book. I, I really just try to 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 think through what how people might be related to place in significant ways, and that's just to kind of bootstrap mm -hmm. an argument for why why we might think that people have some kind of place related entitlements. Right. Yeah. Okay. Your latest book, uh, Who Should Own Natural Resources, is, is a more thorough exploration of one of the chapters in your previous book. This work examines the questions from a few different positions in the debate concerning environment, property, distributive justice, and future generations. Can you talk about your findings? And is there a, an approach where these positions could meld, work together? Yes. Yeah, so the, um, that, that book was a kind of chapter uh, in the earlier book, 
or or at least I discussed it in a chapter, but I left many many things out. So then this led me to write an, an, uh, the new book. And um, what I do. So the reason that the and the other reason I wrote it is I think resources are implicated on almost in most of the serious challenges to the international order, and it's the basis of rival claims in the Arctic and the oceans, the seabed, uninhabited islands, actually Antarctica because we have a treaty, but it will expire, um, and significantly almost all the scientific. Um, bases are right next to where they think there are resources. So once there's a, a worry, once there's a thought that there could be resources there, I think there's claims. So that's, so I think that it's, we urgently need to have a conversation about who should own and who should control natural resources. Because by definition, natural resources are things in which there's no obvious pre-political entitlement to them. They're just there. And so it looks like in some sense, we all have some entitlement to them, right? Um, and I think as well, we have very fractured intuitions about resort, natural resources. So on the one hand, we, we, we do feel that there is, when we're faced with a claim that harvesting resources, maybe the resources of, of a rainforest is necessary to meet the urgent needs of the urban poor. We, we have some sympathy for that claim, but we also have sympathy for the claim of indigenous people who resist development there, and also sympathy for the, for the, for, for the claims of future generations whose lives will be affected by the decisions we make right. now. So I think we have very fractured intuitions and really no way to think through those different kinds of claims. And so what I do is I, I talk about the basis of each of the claims and, and run through and, and, and examine contextually um, the importance of those each one of those claims. Right. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, Margaret, back to you. Oh, the motivation for my research. Uh, you know, uh, when I first, this is not a, a, a when I first f I finished my PhD in, in the LSE and I came to Canada, all the claims, all, all the, the sort of the, the, tradition in which I was brought up, which is a distributive justice tradition, which of course is, is still really important, um, had almost nothing to say with many of the uh, many of the debates that were rampant here in Canada, right? Claims about indigenous of indigenous peoples, claims in Quebec, claims secessionist claims, and it seemed to me that many of those claims implicated territory, and yet mm -hmm. the tradition in which I was brought up had almost nothing to say about it. So thinking about that has um so in in my so I, I did want to think about that and think about how we might begin to uh, theorize these sorts of issues. How did you get to that point where that became a, a topic of interest to you? Were your parents kind of interested in this? Was there some book that was sort of pivotal for you in in, in thinking of moving you down this? kind of a line of research? Well, I wrote a, some work very, very early on. I wrote some work on secession, for example. And then when I wrote on secession, I would always have a bracket, you know, a little footnote that saying that, of course, what would be fully required in order to have a theory of secession is to have a theory about boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the space to do this. But of course, it wasn't that I didn't have the space to do it. It's that I didn't know how to do it. And there was nothing really much written about it. So after a long time, 10 years of noting that it was under-theorized and saying I didn't have space, I decided to think hard about how, how it could be that we might theorize these things. And there, there were historical traditions, right? There's Lockean traditions about property, there's Kant, there's, you know, so you can begin by 
extracting what their various kinds of claims are. You can re you can just extract the theory of territory in the in the claim, right. and then think about which which what could work and test those and when and and test them against, you know, what the principles would imply. In our, for our current international order, and of course, if they have very counterintuitive implications, you might go back and look at the principle and see if that's really the right principle. Huh, that's interesting. I, you know, when you were talking about the fact that this was a, sort of an area that, that hadn't been explored, I had the thought, well, well where do you start? And, and what you seem to be saying is, well, I went back to some of the fundamental um, you know, 17th to 18th century thinkers and and work from there. But that would also be, in terms of defining your scope, would be, a, I think, a big challenge. You really have to be creative in this sort of darkness to figure out what your path is going to be. Right. And and now, um, and, and of course, that you can't be, end there because there's you have to ask, well, how does the tradition speak to other people? So, for example, a colleague at the Arctic University of Norway who works on the Sami and I have put together a workshop at Queen's on September 5th and 6th on indigenous land rights because I have an argument about the moral relationship between people and land. I don't examine indigenous people. I'm interested in the state. But I think that argument has something to say about indigenous people because it does intersect with some of those claims. So I have um, many leading indigenous scholars here. And that's interesting to me because... Canada was the first country to have establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but it was very selective. It was just about residential schools, and land claims were never discussed. So I think as part of any kind of reconciliation, I mean, that's why we actually don't have reconciliation. It sounds like your research is, is uh, interesting in, in its own right, but also has some very significant uh, uh, political currency, things we need mm-hmm. to be talking about and understanding in greater depth. Yeah. Well, in that case, I'm going to learn from them to see um, what their Indigenous understandings are and how it is, so I can see how it connects. Oh, thank you, Margaret. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Margaret Moore, Director of the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's and a professor in the Department of Political Studies. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Margaret Moore, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Jan Luigi Bisleri. Dr. Bisleri is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at Queen's and a clinician scientist at the Kingston General Hospital Research Institute. His research focuses on developing and expanding the use of new treatments and novel, less invasive uh, procedures for cardiac surgery. Dr. Bisleri's work also includes economic analyses of these new approaches to assess their impact on outcomes, such as shorter recovery time and more effective use of hospital resources. Additionally, he's working with the Departments of Biological and Molecular Sciences and Mechanical Engineering to better understand the mechanical properties of the aorta and to uncover new electrical signaling information from the heart. He holds two U.S. patents for novel endoscopic surgical tools. 
Welcome, Dr. Bisleri. Thank you, Ari. Let's begin by uh, having you talk about cardiac surgery as it was and cardiac surgery as it is from the way you do it and kind of what's going on uh, um, in general. Yes. So I think the cardiac surgery has really faced a pretty impressive journey over the last century. It's interesting to remember that beginning of the 20th century, people were even questioning the possibility to operate on the heart. It was considered impossible at that stage. And not many years later, just uh, uh, 40 years later, uh, we started having tools that allowed us to uh, perform a very effective treatment of pretty deadly conditions on the heart. So really cardiac surgery has been uh, revolutionizing the um, landscape of treatments that we can offer to patients. And when you say tools, can you give our listeners an idea of yes. what you're talking about? So at the very beginning, and still is actually uh, much of the core procedures we are performing today, uh, patients uh, were dying for heart attacks. So coronary artery bypass surgery has been really one of the most frequently performed procedures still up to date. And I have to say from a certain extent, not so different compared to what we used to do almost 50 years ago. Valve procedures have been also become extremely popular. And then everything else, which is uh, going from treatment of um, disease of the aorta, which means when the vessel becomes larger and potentially can rupture, and also obviously treatment of irregular heart rhythms. So there is a pretty wide spectrum. But as we were just mentioning, cardiac surgery has been very effective with such treatments. But at the same time, um, these treatments are also invasive. And sometimes they can lead not only to a, a physical trauma, but also to a potential psychological trauma for patients and their recovery after the procedure. So one of the most exciting areas of research and development has exactly been focused on how we can minimize the impact of our surgical treatment on patient outcomes. And obviously, one of the main goals has been to have smaller incisions and potentially even avoiding a very common axis that we use for surgery, which is the opening of the breastbone, which is a very, a very easy access for the surgeon, but very, very scary for patients. Um, we now are able to minimize that incision, sometimes completely avoiding that. And for certain procedures, we can just make a very small cut, just a few centimeters between the ribs on the right and the left side. And in certain specific uh, procedures, like for the treatment of atrial fibrillation, we can even do that completely endoscopic. Which Yeah, tell us what endoscopic means. So endoscopic means uh, that we no longer are directly looking with our eyes at the side where we are operating, but we are using dedicated tools like cameras and long shafted instruments so that we no longer access the tissues, the heart with our hands, but this is done using those instruments that are facilitating this more you know, obviously technically complex uh, procedure for the surgeon. This is something that maybe uh, the audience may be familiar um, about other procedures performed in general surgery um, that are now quite common. But cardiac surgery obviously is pretty complex in terms of the type of site we need to operate it on, but we have been working pretty intensively in order to have dedicated tools that are now allowing us to provide very safe procedures 
also from a, from a minimal invasive standpoint. So in terms of the way cardiac surgery was performed and the way it's done now, was the cardiac surgeon kind of the conductor, the central figure in the old days? And is it now more of a team approach where if you're doing endoscopic um, um, uh, interventions, is there a, a, a doctor or technician doing that or is the surgeon doing that? No, thank you. That's, that's a very important question because I have to say that one of the main uh, changes that we have faced also in, in recent years is that we now have more uh, people sitting at the table with us when performing these procedures. Now, when we are performing per se some minimal invasive procedure that we still consider surgical, we are still the main players in the sense that we are using those instruments. But for example, cardiac surgery is really a team approach we have uh, to manage a patient um, together with the anesthesiologist that is obviously looking after all the uh, main vital parameters and we also have a specific technical person which is called a perfusionist which is a person running the heart lung machine which is a machine keeping the patient alive when we are operating on the heart so we really need to be all coordinated in a very nice team wow Profusionist. What what is? It means that we need to ensure that the blood is flowing through the body and the main organs, specifically the brain, but also the rest of the body, while we arrest the heart. Because the most I personally find amazing that was what uh, honestly captured my complete interest uh, and made me fall in love with cardiac surgery was seeing the first time the heart getting stopped and how. Uh, how hard the heart tries to go back uh, to beat again. So maybe people may think, well, that's actually a good thing that the heart is stopped. It can rest a little bit, but the heart does not want to rest. Right. It wants to beat and keep the person alive. And when we are doing this core part of the procedure, we obviously need to have the heart arrested because we want to be very precise with our action and our sutures. When you are planning to do um, an invasive uh, technique, does the entire team meet or is is this something that you kind of develop the strategy and you kind of quarterback it uh, in real time? No, this is a, another very important question. And this is why I'm very proud of the support I've received here at Queen's University and Kingston uh, Science Center, because uh, making these procedures possible is not just a job uh, or the expertise of a single person. Um, I was recruited here with the purpose of developing these procedures, which are not so commonly used in uh, in Canada. And I'm very proud that our center is really spearheading from that standpoint the expansion of many uh, applications. For some of them, we are the only center in Canada. Uh, and this is actually something we have been building over the last couple of years where everybody is brought on the table. Sometimes we even simulate what we are going through so that we really get in the best possible scenario um, with everybody being up to speed. Fantastic. In the last question I want to ask in this segment, I'd like to hear your, your uh, comments about the, the mitigation of trauma. In, when we started this conversation, we were talking about what was done in the past and what's done currently. And I know that uh, you've talked about endoscopy. Um, 
can you talk a little bit more about the, the, this concept of, of uh, uh, trying to restore tissues, get them to function in a normal way as opposed to using artificial components? Yes. Yeah, so we, this is another important aspect that uh, we have uh, a very strong focus, for example, in trying to uh, repair as much as we can uh, the tissues of the patient, for example, repairing valves. And we really are um, expanding uh, significantly our program from that standpoint. Uh, we are also integrating anytime is possible uh, the use of transcatheter approaches that sometimes are really avoiding even opening the heart at all. And they're allowing us to have an additional layer an additional option of treatment for patients okay. uh, using catheters rather. So, so transcatheter, before you go on, because yes. I'm going to lose it, what is that? It means that we are no longer uh, directly opening the heart uh, with incisions and then suturing back, but we are just using catheters that are inserted, for example, through the groin and then navigating back and uh, then uh, being able to deploy certain valves or certain tools to repair valves. And this is really a, a, an extremely team effort because at that stage, we no longer even see ourselves through the, uh, through the screen, but we really need somebody else providing us the view uh, and the exposure for our treatment. So it's, it's an amazing uh, team approach. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM Campus and Community, Queen's Radio, and Kingston. We're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guest to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, Gianluigi, the microphone is yours. Well, uh, I think that the uh, there is not maybe a specific uh, single event that led me to uh, look into uh, research. It, it was more the interest in exploring uh, new, new areas and new territories. Uh, so this is something that for me has been uh, my main drive and and obviously that has uh, been very nicely merged with the need of becoming uh, more gentle in the way we provide an effective treatment to, to, to our patients. I had the uh, privilege to have many uh, people uh, that uh, were my mentors along my journey including Dr. Oz at some point in my career uh, when it was mostly still focused on the uh, surgical activities, um, which have been really inspiring uh, in the way we need to have a more comprehensive view of the patient and sometimes not simply focusing on the uh, nuances of a surgical specific aspect. Two things strike me about what you just said. One is uh, the, the characteristic of a surgeon, which you know, generally people think of surgeons as um, very definitive, uh, um, uh, strong in their views, knowing that this is right, this is wrong. But you seem to be saying and bringing to what you do a very humanistic and warm tone. And I, that, I find that so engaging and so uh, innovative. Well, thank you. I think that we have, uh, as, as physicians and especially surgeons, heart surgeons, we have the privilege that we are, we are basically granted the, um, uh, the full um, support from the patient and the family 
uh, in taking care of their life. And I think that this cannot be taken lightly. And I think it is not only a technical journey, but also a emotional one. Right. And I think we need to be close to the patient for that aspect as well. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. One more question before we close out this episode. You're a heart surgeon. How did you come to become interested in the heart and not the gallbladder or the brain or the eardrum or what have you? Yeah. In reality, I wanted to become a musician. But really? <laughs> I still maybe look at some point in my career <laughs> to turn into that. It was interesting that I talked about being a conductor. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I, I was always fascinated about uh, the heart. Um, and I found something pretty magic, especially because um, it is obviously maybe our only moving organ and constantly moving organ. As, as I mentioned before, it was just... Uh, completely uh, a striking experience the first time I look at open heart operation and seeing the miracle of the heart wanting to come back and and that really excites me still when I'm this when I'm talking about that to the point that obviously every surgeon is biased in their own field but I think there is something specifically magic about the heart <laughs> that's so beautiful uh, that's so beautiful and and inspiring my guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Gianluigi Bisleri, Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery at Queen's, and a Clinician Scientist at the Kingston General Hospital Research Institute. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Dr. Bisleri, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. 